Hi, welcome to Coping with Colleen. I'm here to add a splash of positivity to your week as we talk about mental health and how to cope with whatever comes your way. Please know this account is not a substitute for therapy or any other clinical care. If you are struggling, please talk to your doctor and or find a local therapist. In the event of an emergency, call 911. Welcome back to another episode of Coping with Colleen. This week, I'm here with guest Gia Fontana, who speaks on her struggles with anorexia, bulimia, and Hashimoto's. She touches on her experiences in treatment, how she handles triggers, and her involvement in pageantry. I encourage those who may be sensitive to detailed conversations about eating disorders to listen with caution and or avoid this episode altogether depending on your current state. I know Gia has a lot to share with you today, so we're going to go ahead and dive right in. All right, so welcome Gia. Hi. (laughs) Hello, so do you want to just introduce yourself for a quick second? Yeah, okay, so actually I have known Colleen since we were, I don't even know, five? Yeah, we were technically babies. So yeah, I have known Colleen since we were five. The sweetest girl, I'm so grateful that you asked me to come on and talk about my experience. Um, So a little bit about me, I am a senior in college right now. I go to Arizona State University and I'm studying psychology and I will be graduating at the end of summer. So right now I'm just like in the process of looking for an internship and getting all that like squared away. So hopefully by that time, fingers crossed. Um, And in the meantime, I do work for Starbucks. I'm a strip supervisor there and they have an excellent college achievement program. So they're hooking it up for me because, you know, obviously there's been a few wrong turns, which is why I had to find, you know, a plan f at this point i'm like there's just so many changes but yeah so here i am we're good now and that's okay i feel like that's something people need to hear i was just talking about this with someone else too that Mm -hmm. i feel like people beat themselves up so bad when they don't have that traditional college experience you know leaving home parties you make friends on the first day it's four years then you graduate and then you get your dream job like that doesn't happen for everyone or most people. So I think that's good for people to hear that it's okay to have a plan B, C, D, E. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the time it didn't feel like, oh, this is good. I was like, oh my God, I'm failing myself. I've changed my major. I've, you know, been in three different majors and now I'm like settled in psychology and no turning back now. I'm like, I don't have any more time for this. But, you know, there isn't really a time frame on it. And I've become a lot more comfortable with that because I was like, you know, I want to get my life started. And that was kind of the reason that, like, I had to surrender to, like, all my demons and really figure out how to (laughs) take them out because, you know, there's a life to live. And I couldn't, I couldn't really waste any more time on it on top of the fact that it was, like, absolutely draining. But, I know it, well, feels, it felt so wrong mm-hmm. at the time, but for sure, yeah, in the end, like it really doesn't matter. So many people, even if you do finish on like, you know, the traditional path, you go to that four-year school, you graduate, you get the job and everything seems all great. Then many times people regret the decisions they've made and which is like totally fine too. But I mean, when I was 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do it's totally different. I'm in psychology now. It used to be fashion merchandising. <laughs> so I'm like, here we are, you know? I both. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to actually, like, I'm applying to internships where I could kind of use both of them in, like, health psychology advertising. Cool. In a way, yeah. So I applied at, you know, a health, um, it's called FCB Health. So hopefully that works out. And it's in the city and yeah, I'm really, I'm really hoping that works out. And so I could do their branding and kind of apply all the aspects of my life into it. So yeah, love it. At least I'll make something out of my fashion merchandising degree, hopefully. 
you'll figure it out. We're all on. Yeah, it's all going to come into place. Um, sure. So let's, I guess, dive right in. I, I also want to hear more about your life, and I feel like I have a million questions I could go on. But anyway, um, you said something about um, like figuring out your demons or tackling your demons. What do you consider to be those demons in your life? Well, you know, it really started out as an eating disorder. I never really struggled with anxiety or depression before. Um, maybe in like some little pieces of life and it was like just a phase and I was kind of like, eh. but it was when my eating disorder started and that brought on anxiety and depression. And it was really as I was getting over my eating disorder, the anxiety and depression kind of got worse. And that was hard to deal with because, you know, you're thinking, okay, I'm taking all these steps to get better and it doesn't feel like things are getting better. Um, but the eating disorder was a huge piece of my life that I needed to get rid of. And it started back in, it's my senior year of high school. And it's not, it wasn't just one thing that brought it on. You know, it was years of being told, you know, this isn't going to happen if you weigh this much and no one's going to like you if you weigh this much and you'll never get married if, and I'm like, oh my God. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm turning 18. This is my entrance to womanhood. Act like a woman. And it's like, that's not even. Yeah. And you had, um, from what I remember, like you dabbled in modeling for a little bit too. And I, I mean, I can't speak on that directly, but I'm sure that that industry just promotes that even more. I think like once I entered into that world, I put so much pressure on myself to, you know, follow the path of that world. You know what I mean? And I, you know, naturally, I, you know, I'm not, nobody is, nobody's like this super stick figure whatever. And like, I took it to the extreme. So that way I could always fit that mold. And really the only mold I should have ever stayed in was my own because life was so much better before I, you know, was conforming to, you know, hopefully win Miss New Jersey or do any of those things. Like I, everything just kind of collapsed on me the more that I, you know, indulged into that world. And I would live my life for like those three days a year that like I would compete. And like, I hated, hated that. And I was like, I'm sure everyone else does this. I'm like, no, this is not okay. You know, I like have to share this childhood tidbit because Gia is a gorgeous human being who growing up, I always thought was like the coolest, prettiest person. So it's so, the, the reason I say that is because I feel like everyone everywhere nonstop is comparing themselves. It honestly doesn't even matter what you look like. You're like, I could be thinner, prettier, stronger, bigger, whatever it is, like whatever your ideal image is, you always think you're not there. So unfortunately, right. we're never going to be what we want to be if that's what we keep holding ourselves to. Right. Thank you. That was very sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah. Exactly. You never know what anyone's dealing with. And I would always get so frustrated. Like people would comment on my post and be like, oh, you're so perfect. And I'm like, I cry myself to sleep every night. Not, you know, basically because I felt that I was lacking perfection, but that maintaining what I thought was perfection was so crippling because, you know, basically it just had to do with not eating or constantly thinking about what I wanted to eat and what I wasn't going to eat and what I was going to do if I ate something in particular. Like I remember, I was actually, I listened to your one podcast and you were talking about counting the calories in a stick of gum. And I was like, yeah, I've been there. And I, I used to like- I remember like seeing the back and like, wait, there's- yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And I used to like do like the whole sugar alcohol counting. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't even know what a sugar alcohol is anymore, but I'm like, it was, I was like, that is so me. And I used to think like, oh, I can't have a full piece of gum. I like remember spending like, I don't know, $5 on this weird 
pack of gum. I think it's called like Simply Gum. I don't even know what it is, but it's all like this natural stuff. And it looks like dog food. And I was like, oh, this is so good for you. It has none of this all. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I was torturing myself. But at the same time, like living with an eating disorder, it's kind of like you're being told to inflict torture on yourself. And like my whole way around it was, you know, I never wanted anybody to hurt me more than I could hurt myself. And that's relationship wise or, you know, you know, words can hurt. You know, I relate to that a lot. And that's something I thought about when I basically just like word vomited when I did the mini about um, (laughs) my experience, which was all compact. But um, afterwards, I'm like, it sounds like I'm saying eating disorders are about wanting to be skinny. And that's not true. Um, So I'm glad that you said that. Yeah. And I definitely think it's not all about being skinny. It definitely isn't. I mean, it's about control and taking control and making sure that like no outside force is going to break you which then in the end all the outside forces break you the more you keep like bullying yourself down to nothing what feels like nothing and yeah it's I mean it's an extremely hard journey to go on and I mean I couldn't even cover every aspect of it because we'd be here for, I think, 20 years. (laughs) Like every single thought was so chaotic. And I remember like, I got really good at doing like ED healthy self dialogues. And those really helped me to get over my eating disorder or sort out the thoughts of them. But there were so many voices involved. And I remember like having this three second thought and it would turn into like seven pages of dialogue for just a three second thought. Mm -hmm. or multiple thoughts just like conglomerating and like it was just gibberish in my head and it was just like the chaos was was always a mile a minute you could it never slowed down like you know the middle of the night in the morning in the afternoon you're trying to do anything and there's just hardly a way to focus after it gets to a certain point Mm -hmm. you know it's like you're on a high and then it's consuming and I try to be careful not to say like triggering things, but it happens without you even realizing it. Like um, I was somewhat young. So I remember like literally waiting for the bus. I was like, well, I can't sit on this bench that we have to wait for the bus because I have to stand because you burn more calories if you stand than if you sit. So I can't sit because I'm going to sit on the bus. Like it's it's crazy. It's silly. Like I shouldn't say it's crazy, but um, it's it's a a rational thought that like you make sense of. Yeah. And I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, when I was actually in treatment, the amount of times they would be like, I'm standing up and they're like, why are you standing? I'm like, okay, wait, I'm not even like thinking of that anymore. I'm like, I feel like I'm in jail. I'm like, somebody let me do something other than like sit here and marinate into the couch. I'm like, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, But no, I absolutely agree with that. And I think like there are triggering things and it's hard not to let them affect you. But I think a lot of times, like something that really was a disadvantage to me when I was in therapy um, for my eating disorder was constantly feeling that I had to focus on the harmful things that people were saying to me um, in order to like protect myself in some weird way. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of my therapists would like emphasize the detriments of like certain things people would say, like if someone was like, oh my God, you look so good. And it's like, people should never comment on the way that you look. And it's like, you know, in a perfect world, okay. But people don't know that. And people, you know, just how we, or myself, I could speak for myself was like engulfed in this eating disorder diet culture world. I always did that and I didn't know the detriments of it. You know what I mean? Like, I just like figured out that I can't hold everybody to such, you know, a crazy standard or like, it's so unrealistic to think that people aren't going to say certain things. And I remember like right after I got out of treatment, I was like, just in like weekly therapy, always looking for a way that somebody was like 
victimizing me with words that would hurt my recovery or hurt my eating disorder. And like right after it was about a month after I got a job at Starbucks, that's when I started working there. And customers would be like, um, what's the fat content in that milk? And I'd be like, (laughs) and it was like, you know, all those triggered, triggering alarms were like going off and sometimes I would hand it to them or like I would take my headset off if somebody asked and like somebody else would pick it up and I would bring that to therapy and be like this is what they're saying and it's like oh that's so wrong and I'm like I had to talk myself out of it like at the end of the day whether and you have an eating disorder or not and people talk about their journeys and their before and after pictures and all this stuff you know it's really we have to look into like how we're going to handle it. And I wish a therapist gave me that insight of how to handle the situation instead of constantly thinking or making myself a victim of it. And I think that's where like things kind of went wrong for me, but also where they shifted, where I was like, I got this on my own. And now I had to break away from it because I felt like I was being held back. But yet again, that's also like particular therapists. And not everyone's like that, you know? So I did have a hard time finding good ones for me. Um, I know like a few rock star ones, um, but overall like my long-term therapist, like she was not good for me. And I kind of just like broke down crying and like, you know, and they say like, you know, you break up with your therapist. (laughs) I was like, crying my eyes out and it like just like this is not working like this is what I needed this is what I've tried to communicate and it didn't work out and I can't do it anymore there was no like fixing it I was like I would leave and be crying for like a week straight I'd be depressed it was not working and like turned into like more of my shopping retail therapy you know because I had to go to the city for it so I would leave the city and or I wouldn't leave the city I would just be like oh Macy's you know and like waltz on in and just use that to cope with it and it was like nothing was healthy about anything I was doing um sure. but yeah and that is a very a very real part of therapy is learning how to apply what you're learning into the real world because none of us none of us live in a perfect bubble and we all have triggers that are different than other people's triggers and we all have different things we're handling and like life is hard and we have to figure out how to protect ourselves while still like navigating the real world. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and like they say, like, even in recovery, it's not linear and there's going to be like those things that are affecting you. So like, you know, say like there's an Instagram account and, you know, everyone has a story, everyone has a journey and how they choose to share it is their own right. So like for me, if I find something particular, particularly triggering and it's from somebody close to me, like I can address it and like, a respectful way but you know I can always unfollow an Instagram page of someone that I don't know if it's hurting my recovery but I have to remember that like my recovery is mine it's not anybody else's and like what I do has like I shouldn't feel that you know this person is completely damaging me when they don't even know the severity of it and I can't expect them to you know like there's no need to crucify like the people who you feel are like wronging your journey back to health, but like also don't crucify yourself for having possibly triggered somebody. You know what I mean? Because you never know what's going to set somebody off and you know, no one wants to walk on eggshells. So like you step once on, it's going to like crack into three pieces. You step again, it's like cracking into 10 and then, you know, you do it again and it's like 20 pieces of eggshell are on the floor. Um, And like, you can't heal if you're going to walk on eggshells, just how you can't make people walk on eggshells around you um uh-oh did you hear that ding that's okay <laughs> okay like I don't even know how to shut this off um you know and if you just keep like breaking stepping on eggshells breaking eggshells like it's going to become more and more toxic for everybody so I think like it's important to figure out how to like set those boundaries without like pushing people out of the bounds of your life to protect your recovery, but also protect your relationships with them. Sure, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about body dysmorphia because I know you've spoken on that and those oftentimes get entangled together in eating disorder journey and body dysmorphia. Um, And it's something that I think 
is becoming a little bit more of a buzzword. So people probably know a little bit about it, but don't really understand it. Like, could you speak on it a little bit? Yeah. So actually I do have a funny story about body dysmorphia. Like I know what I was seeing at times was like totally not real. And I would look in the mirror and be like, I am huge. And I'm like, then I look back at these pictures and I'm now I see them and I'm like, I was so thin. I don't even like, how could I have called that huge? And it's because I was holding myself to like this supermodel standard. And, you know, it's kind of like you put yourself into these different worlds and then you compare yourself as that's what's going to be the norm for me, you know? And, you know, I think like if you're putting yourself in comparison to another person who's probably starving themselves and not eating appropriately, you're going to like see, you're going to judge yourself a little more harshly, but then it gets to the point where it doesn't matter what anybody else looks like. You're just so, you know, hyper-focused about every little, what you think may be an imperfection. Um, you know, I would think like if I had bags under eyes, which I do right now, <laughs> it's a long weekend. Um, if I have bags under my eyes, like I used to think that that was like, me gaining weight when I'm just tired and I wouldn't allow myself to sleep because it was like you know if you there was that weird crazy not it was very unrealistic you know saying that like oh if you sleep after you eat and it's just not true like I sleep after I eat all the time it's like now it's part of my routine that I eat breakfast and go take a nap my mom's like you used to do this as a baby all the time and I'm like that's my way, I guess. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, breakfast. I'm like 7 a.m. Like it's still the middle of the night. Gotta get back to bed, <laughs> you know? So um, the whole body dysmorphia thing was, you know, rough for me. And there were times where I was so far off, but there were also times like once I was in treatment and I was ready to give it all up, they would, they made us like draw out on like, a giant, I don't know. Gosh, I hated that. Yes. Oh, I hated it too. And I drew out what I thought my body was. And then I had to stand up next to it and I was dead on. And I was like, I told you, I'm like, I know that I know what I look like right now, you know? And yeah, there's, and they were, they didn't even really know what to say back to me because they were like, I, I didn't, you know, that wasn't the point of the project. The point of the project was to show that like, I, didn't really know and I had a false perception and I'm like at the time I did not have a false perception so I think it comes and goes you know but because I had actually gained so much weight before I went to treatment because I fell into like a pretty rough binge purge cycle I was gonna address that that you had kind of swung both ways yes. yeah which is not uncommon no not at all and I think like a lot of times it's very common that people with anorexia do fall into a bulimic pattern if for me it was like the starvation got too much and like I was almost like in a refeeding process on my own because it's like okay like once every two weeks I was like binge eating and then it kept getting harder and harder to stop and then it was like all day long 12 hours a day and it was insane and like the amount of food I was eating was like so uncomfortable I would call it eating around the world and I would eat like every type of food possible and just they, they do say that um when you restrict yourself so much your your body then goes into like scarcity mode or starvation mode and it thinks I'm never going to get this again like food mm -hmm. is not available to me so then when it is sometimes that can lead to, to binging I'm not saying that happened in your case but just oh yeah no it definitely did I mean you're spot on I mean I would think I, I would put white bread in my mouth and be like oh my god this load of flavor <laughs> and it's like white bread is not loaded with flavor but like I was just, it was, my diet was bland and scarce and you probably, my body, the way that your body thinks of it, you know, you're thinking like, oh, I'm out in this, you know, post-industrial world and everything's all, you know, 
high tech and all this stuff, but like your body thinks that you're like trying to find food in a jungle. You know what I mean? Like they think like you can't come across any type of real substance. And, you know, and when I actually understand that now at the time, I didn't care. I'm like, good. I hope it thinks I'm starving. That's my goal. You know what I mean? I hope it thinks I'm like dying out in the forest right now. But now, you know, I feel bad for everything that I did put my body through and they are very resilient. And to be in a good place now and to realize everything that I've done to harm myself, you know, I'm really appreciative of all the good things that I do have. Um, That's such a a beautiful way to look at it. Like, I love the idea of apologizing to your body for, for hating it or for putting it through harm, whether like physical or emotional. And um, I I also like love all the sayings of like, uh, how did they go? I love my body because it, it runs, it takes me to my family, you know, brings me outside, whatever, you know, like your body does so much more for you than just like a show for the people around you. Yeah, really. It's very true. And I had a hard time figuring that out for a long time. I remember when we were in treatment, we had like this, you know, exercise room. And, you know, the more you like, when you graduated from floor yoga, (laughs) like you could actually move, you're allowed to. the exercise therapist had like a whiteboard and she wanted us all to write what we loved about, you know, our bodies that had nothing to do with the way that they looked. And I was like, I love my body for being, I don't know, something about it's, I'm getting stronger and healthier. And my one friend looked at me and she's like, that's a load of shit. I'm like, I know. I didn't even believe it, but sometimes like you have to, mm-hmm. And it feels stupid, but like, I don't care what you can come up with. If all you can say that day is like, I love my body because it didn't literally fall apart on me. You know, my limbs stayed together. I don't care the bare minimum that you can come up with. If you can come up with one thing, that's that's something. Oh, for sure. I remember the hardest for me was telling myself that I was beautiful. That was literally the last thing that I could ever do. And I remember my one therapist... This was, you know, post-PHP, IOP. Um, she had me look in the mirror. It was just a face mirror um, at her office. And she was like, tell yourself you're beautiful five times. I'm like, I can't even do it once. And like her standing, I remember like my stomach was turning because it felt so wrong. And like, like, the way I was looking at it was like affirmations like felt like I was violating some sort of like social code like I don't you don't walk around like oh man I'm so pretty you know what I mean like I'm like this is so wrong and I always felt like I wasn't allowed to say like I'm not very good at like accepting compliments because I think like that makes me look full of myself you know what I mean and I think like I've had a hard time with people you know having this preconceived idea about me that I do think of myself that way and I'm like little do you know I nitpick you know every aspect of myself and I never the entire time I was in my eating disorder I only thought I was beautiful if I had bones popping and if I felt like I was gonna pass out like I knew I was doing a good job and like um a key signal that I knew I was doing a good job was amenorrhea and when I got that back, I felt like. Yeah, it was scary for sure. Yeah. But that's, that's so warped if you think about it. Like mm-hmm. you are, there's no point going, like you're, I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll leave it at that. Well, wait, <laughs> I was going to say something. Oh, when you said that you nitpick every part of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. The, that scene from Mean Girl popped into my head where they're all looking in the mirror and they're like, I, I can't remember what each thing is. Like, I don't like my nose. I don't like my hips. And then they're like staring at Katie. What do you hate about yourself? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a joke and it's like stereotypicalized. I don't think that's a word, but, um, but in a way that is 
what our society does. Like you're in a way you're expected to hate yourself and you're, um, yeah. yeah. And that's why, like, I think in America and like well-developed countries, eating disorders are a lot more prevalent because, you know, she came from, Katie came from South Africa and it was like, you know, like you appreciate like things, actual things in life. And here it's so like modern and there's, you have such fast access to, you know, looking anything up and finding out more and looking into diets and all the different diets. Like there's a reason there's so many diets because none of them work. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like none of them work. If they worked, you wouldn't constantly be on a diet your whole life. Learned that the hard way, obviously. (laughs) But I mean, I'm grateful I know it now. And I sometimes even think that I have more freedom from food than most people, even without eating disorders. I agree. You kind of, thankfully, you sort of swing so far than the other way. I know you're saying. Don't get me wrong. Like there's days where sometimes it hits me out of nowhere. And I'm like, why am I so anxious about what I ate? And I hate when that comes back in because mm-hmm. I've moved past this and I don't like feeling stopped from living my life. So when those feelings, hey, I get like scared, like, no, I cannot be backtracking. But at the end of the day, like I had programmed my mind and I'm sure you can understand this to believe that anything you put in your body was bad for so long. And yeah. You know, it takes a lot of consistency um, to get that momentum on your side to keep going um, and keep healing, which is a very hard thing to do. And especially when it like hits really hard and like, I feel like it's harder for me to get past when all those thoughts and feelings come back now, because I used to handle them like a pro. Like, you know, it's like, you're very high functioning, you know, faking it all the time. Like I have, my one friend actually said to me once, we were like in front of a bunch of people and I was all like, oh, I have fun. And we got in the car and I was drained because she knew everything that was going on with me. And she's like, this is scary. How like bad you're faking that you're okay. And I don't even know how you could even do it. And I'm like, honestly, I need a nap right now. I'm like, I deserve like five Emmys for my grand performance for five years. But it it takes everything out of you. And it's like feeling that feeling that that's going to happen again. And I don't want to say that it's like a little bit post-traumatic, but it kind of is. But I inflicted it on myself, which is what kind of makes it feel like, how can I have that, you know, like these really far out situations didn't, you know, happen to me. I kind of manufactured it myself. And, you know, it feels, it feels like almost wrong to say like, okay, like there's people who come back from war or have experienced, you know, sexual assault and really, really dark things. And I have to remind myself that, you know, no matter the extent of my problem, my problem is still something that I had to deal with and get past. And it doesn't take away from theirs. in severity because you know everyone's brain works differently and you know I killed off a lot of brain cells not eating which is why my brain just doesn't you know obviously produce any serotonin via the SSRIs which I feel like I can't I'm like I really don't want to do this anymore and my doctor's like do you understand that your brain will not regenerate them because you have destroyed that part of your brain for now and I'm like I don't like that I did that but you know it's part of my journey and it's part of my story and if I could share that with somebody and help them feel more comfortable with the fact that you know they have to take you know SSRIs or any anti-anxiety medicine or depression medicine to feel better and to live a good life then so be it because I'm very vocal and if I could help anybody that's you know a bigger reward to me. Yeah, and you touched on so much. I mean, we're all gonna have bumps in the road no matter what we've been through. And just because you've had a bump, even a setback, doesn't mean you're back at square one. You know, you don't necessarily have to be afraid of that. I think everyone sometimes deserves to remind themselves of all their resilience and like how far they've come and how much they can handle, whether they enjoy handling that or not. Um, right. You know, like, 
things are, are going to be hard and we're not always going to do the, the very best job at it. And that's okay. It doesn't mean, you know, we're at rock bottom. Um, mm -hmm. Something else I wanted to address that you said, but it flew out of my mind. So. Oh, I know. My mind is just like do, 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 all the time. <laughs> I get it. I can't even like think of what I said two minutes ago, but anyway, you're, you're actually going to laugh. So I, before you sent me over the, you know, general uh -huh. format of uh, the podcast, randomly, when I would have random thoughts, I like picked up these like square notes on my desk and I was like, I got to write this down. I got to write this down. I'm like, everything's like front and back. It's like random. I'm like, I don't even know which way it goes. But if I think of something, I have to get it down because I can't on cue make it come back because I go from one thing to the next so fast and it'll just once it's gone, it's gone. We can give it three months maybe to come back. So like, I think yeah. so far, every guest episode has had the line, I don't know what I was about to ask you, like edited out of it. Yeah, I, I, it's actually really funny. I'm like, that's, I feel like it might be a common trait of like, you know, us perfectionists who have like, you know, your perfectionism can be an asset and a liability. And yeah. sometimes it's really good because I'm a hard worker and my work ethic is, you know, a little bit too much actually, but that's where <laughs> it's more of a liability. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll work. I'll do this. I'll do that. And I'm like, wait, you know, and you overbook yourself and you're like, why am I so tired? And then you're crying. And I'm like, okay, but you know, and yeah, I think that like gets your mind racing a lot when you're always trying to like think of everything that you could do yeah. to if you do try to set boundaries for yourself because of that because you know that you can be um perfectionistic or just want to achieve everything you possibly can how do you do that how do you set boundaries in your life so that's one of the things that i had recently actually started to get a hold of um, and i've been out of treatment for about two and a half years now and you know it's it all comes one at a time and i had a hard time accepting that but i remember before i went into treatment i told myself this is the one time because i'm like i'm not doing this again like and i also i was very ready which i think is very important for people like you have to be ready otherwise you're kind of just wasting your time because there were times where I was like, oh, I'll go get help. And they told me they had an ice cream party once a month. And I was like, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I was like, an ice cream party once a month. I'm like, what do you think I am? I'm not eating ice cream once a month. I'm like, dad, I'm like, who wants to get McDonald's for the third time today? I'm like, you know, which I'm grateful for, but it was hard for me to do that. But before I went into treatment, I was like, this is the time. Be patient. I'm not patient. And I had to focus on practicing patience with myself and knowing that this wasn't going to be a fast process. Um, and sometimes I'll like overdo it before I cut back to try to make up for lost time. I remember the summer before I went into treatment, I took 17 credits and I, ref I, I had done an intake that March when I relapsed back into bulimia um, after I was on like a 20 month um, bender of, you know, anorexia, starvation, over-exercising, all of that. And I remember like, I, I couldn't do it anymore. So, but I refused to go whenever the next bed was ready because I had to be in charge and I had to be in control just like my eating disorder. And like, that was my way of doing it. I was like, if I have to take off that whole fall semester, I'm going to do it in the summer it was chaotic. I had like a biology lab on my table, my kitchen table. <laughs> I'm like dissecting a frog where we eat dinner. I didn't really eat. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, it's not bothering me. It's not my problem. Um, but yeah, I had to, I have to figure out how to balance things because that wasn't a healthy thing. And at the rate I was going, it was so fast and so hard. And every time I fell into you know, because I went from anorexic to bulimic, back to anorexic, back to bulimic. And once I fell into that, like, second phase of bulimia, it was relentless. And I kept hitting rock bottom daily. 
I thought I thought I thought I couldn't get any lower and I kept getting it lower and that back and forth of like go to the extreme then cut back doesn't work so just taking you know focusing my awareness on that some that of that's something that I struggle with before I went to treatment was good for me and I think that like I've been practicing that since and sometimes it is really hard for me to cut back and set those boundaries and say like I can't do this mm -hmm. or and it's not necessarily that I can't it's that I don't want to hurt myself in that way you know and it seems like I'm failing still like I still get those like things in my head where I'm like if I'm not doing everything I'm not doing enough if I'm not tired if I'm not exhausted to the point that I'm crying I'm not working hard enough and I would actually I used to punish myself for having fun I was like not allowed to have fun and if I did have fun I had to like hurt myself twice as hard and I'm like there's mm -hmm. not a lot of logic behind you know mental disorders like that but yeah and I, I want to touch on two things real quick because I do think some folks somewhat especially so for the eating disorder community, um, the comparisons are so harsh and there are trends across ages, across disorders where the idea of being hospitalized is glorified extremely. Um, and the idea is like, I am finally sick enough if I have to go to the hospital or, you know, I, that's where I'll be able to rest or like there really are notions like that that I've unfortunately like heard kids that I've treated say I've to some extent experienced that myself you know so I want to be really careful for anyone out there who is struggling and is like gosh I'm obviously not as sick or as thin as this girl you know like or whatever the and I'm not trying to shame you Gia like whatever people are thinking what it really means to go into an inpatient treatment is you are miserable like there is essentially no joy in your life if that is a treatment level you mean. And I'm not also not trying to shame folks who have been there either. It's a careful line to walk, but I just don't want anyone listening to feel like that's what I should be aiming for. Um, no. Do yeah. not. <laughs> and yeah. if, you, if you have to show up at the hospital and get an intake done, the idea of honesty and patience, like you will do yourself the biggest service if you can be honest with those people and you can be patient with the process. Yes, absolutely. And for me, when I was ready, I was ready. And I know that that was a lot different for other people that were in treatment at the same time as me. And, you know, I didn't go inpatient and I went to residential. Um, so I was never in a hospital setting, but I was in, you know, the next step below that and I remember also to not you know I wanted to keep losing weight before I went I'm like no and I'm not small enough to go and it wasn't because I felt like I wasn't small enough as per like you know eating disorder standards but I was like I am not small enough for me and I am not gonna like you know go through this refeeding process and whatever never lost the way I wound up gaining more because I was so sick and so there's a, there's a definite fear of like if this is as sick as I'm allowed to be <laughs> before they try to fix me then I have to make sure I win this game and I am like as sick as possible oh yeah oh yeah it's it is it's a vicious vicious disease and yeah, it was very damaging to do that. But, you know, I also, once I got to treatment and went through the process and watched how, you know, when insurance cuts, there is that stereotype, which is very unfortunate. I actually wrote like a huge paper on it recently. And um, BMI, there's a lot of bias with BMI. And I remember it was my second week there I was not in, you know, the, you know, clinically sick with an eating disorder BMI the way I was when I didn't want help. 
-hmm. you know, and even then it wasn't that low, low number. And I felt like I was failing because of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like my body couldn't do that and that's okay. But I did feel like I used to wish that I could have gone to treatment thinner mm -hmm. and it would make me like upset. And I think I was more upset about it because I knew that like, as soon as I was getting in, I was getting booted out because, and I knew that the people that were smaller than me were there for four times as long because their body had to reach a certain, you know, weight category in order to move on. But, you know, if we're going to talk about a mental disorder, why are we emphasizing the physical in treatment? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that is what just drove me nuts. And I, and unfortunately things have to trickle down because initially, I mean, the, the DSM, the diagnostic manual is far from perfect. And initially it did categorize anorexia as ha you had to be at a certain, a certain body weight. And um, I think at some point, even the loss of your period was a requirement for the diagnosis. And neither of those are true at this point um, for obvious reasons and many reasons. Um, but clearly like there's still bias in the um, treatment part of things. Absolutely. And I mean, even in one of my textbooks, because obviously psychology, they talk about eating disorders and I would go off in these discussion posts <laughs> because I was so mad. One of the, so one of the textbooks was talking about um, eating disorders and how you get, when you get older, you grow out of them. Mm, fun, that's not true. Who? <laughs> and I'm like, this is coming from scholars. And I'm like, honestly, if you call yourself a scholar, I think you're dumber than most. You know what I mean? Because what is this scholarly thing you're writing about that is completely untrue? Like, I don't even know where you could have gotten that information from because eating disorders do not go away. And in fact, if you don't address them, they just get worse. And it's very sad. And, you know, I can, I joke about it a lot, but if I'm going to think about it, deeply like you know it it hurts and I don't want to go back there yeah. and and it's it, also one of or the deadliest of a mental of mental health disorders yeah so it's a lot of people joke as a coping mechanism and that's okay but it yeah. is very serious and it is very sad it is it's very sad and I mean there was not I don't think one day in the, all the days that I was in treatment, maybe there was like two weeks that I didn't cry. And I mean, even before that, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night. I mean, I also, so from my eating disorder, which also don't recommend, um, you know, I didn't have certain symptoms. Like I never developed lanugo, which is like the, you know, that extra hair growth on your body to keep you warm um, for anybody who doesn't know. And but I did my develop Hashimoto's and that's an autoimmune disorder. It's um, hypothyroidism, but it was brought on by my thyroid started cannibalizing itself because I wasn't eating enough. And it was actually, when I found out it was a weight gaining issue, I went harder into like starvation and I don't even know how I did it because many of the people I remember my, one of my mom's friends said, I, you know, I had Hashimoto's and I was training for, she was training for like a marathon to run a marathon. And she's like, I couldn't stop gaining weight. And I'm like, what was I even doing to have had like a weight gaining disorder and still be losing and controlling it so much. And like, it just made it so much harder for me to like stay in that frame that I wanted to be in. And even when I got to that frame, it wasn't enough. It had to go lower because there was never an end. And I went away to Texas to go to school while I had um, the thyroid disorder. I found out like it was, it was probably like five months 
before I went away that I knew I had it. And this doctor kept trying to put me on like natural stuff. I'm not very like holistic. I'm like, give me all that synthetic stuff, make it work. I don't care, you know? And I'm like, fine. All right, let's do it. Um, it was too natural and it wasn't working and I went away anyway. So I went away to be on my own, run away with my eating disorder and it backfired. I could barely walk home from class. And I remember the idea of getting a lift meant that I was like failing. I would like walk into the walls, like the buildings, cause I couldn't walk in a straight line. And I remember like one day specifically, I'm like, I'm going to take a warm bath, sit there. And I remember just laying there thinking like, I felt like I was like lobotomized. Like I felt like I looked like a lobotomized person, like laying there and there was just like tears running down my face with a straight face. And I was so sick. And I remember I would have, you know, my uncle would call me and tell me like, you've got to come home. I would call my parents. It was like four o'clock in the morning every night. I couldn't sleep. And I remember like I was taking like Z-Quil. One time I took like four, couldn't sleep. I was... My heart was constantly racing because, you know, Hashimoto's causes, you know, additional anxiety, depression, insomnia, on top of the fact that I had that off already from my eating disorder. And it was terrible. And then it was that March that I relapsed back into bulimia. And I remember I was like, I called my mom and I'm like, I, it was only once and it's never going to happen again. And it didn't stop any day after that. And I couldn't stop it. And I remember as much guilt and shame that I felt for, you know, throwing up again. It was the best release that I've ever had, you know, and that's where it got tricky because I felt like it was all like this pent up stress and anxiety and pressure on myself. And like, that was my way of releasing it, you know, and that's why like eating disorders aren't just about weight, but to a degree, I think for me, the weight did have something to do with it because I think if the weight didn't have anything to do with it or food didn't have anything to do with it, I'd probably be an alcoholic, you know, like why, why was that my thing? You know, what I would probably be something, you know, have some other disorder or resort to something else. I don't know why it was food, but I think it's because, you know, there's shame on body image growing up and thinking that I was never enough. And then once I started competing in beauty pageants and they were judging you based on the way that you looked, <laughs> that didn't, that just, I think that was just like the final straw, but I was also addicted to it. I loved it because I fell into an eating disorder from trying to achieve those standards. Like nobody ever told me I had to do that. I told myself I had to do that. So I knew um, getting involved in them was kind of like my way of doing what I always dreamed of doing and being that like woman and doing that to my, you know, women don't really eat so they can have a good figure. Like, I don't even know what I was thinking, but, and it was kind of like my way of stepping away from the life that I used to live. I was graduating high school and I knew I was not going to be cheerleading anymore, which I did for 12 years of my life. And that was going to be my new hobby. And like, I kind of forced it, but I loved it because like, I love, you know, the gowns and the glitz and the glamour. And like, I, I was going to be a fashion major, you know, I love that stuff. Um, but when it came to the body, then everything about me just became wrong. And that's all I focused on. And it was just kind of like my way of trying to restart my life or like find a new path or direction. And it just clearly didn't really work out. But then there's even still times that I think like, oh, I wanna do it again, but it's not gonna serve me. And it really never did serve me. I never won anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> But you know what, like, I don't feel badly about that anymore. Like in the beginning I did, because I was like, I don't think anybody was like doing 
to themselves what I was doing to myself to get to those points, you know? I, I did want to sort of ask you that before we are finished, I wanted you to be able to highlight something that's changed in your, your thinking process, like maybe something that you believe to be true before that you know is no longer true now or a thought that's more beneficial for you now. Um, yeah, so, well, I don't believe in diets. No, like I just, you know, people will be like, oh, I'm doing keto. And I mean, I work at Starbucks, so they get their keto drink and the entire cup's heavy cream. I'm like, listen, to each their own, food freedom, but that cannot be good for you. I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, oh yeah, can I have like, you know, all this? I don't know. And I just, it's even funnier now to me that I'm like, this is so ridiculous where I would have been like, okay, tell me more about it, you know, in the past. And I don't believe in diets or diet culture. And I think like, it's hard because there's, you know, a lot of people who, you know, will cut back food and it's not going to affect them the way it would affect me. Just right. how like I can go out and have a few drinks and not feel like I have to come home and keep on going. You know, right. I, you know, and I think realizing that has been good for me but also I felt like I had pushed people a little bit out as I was like, if I, you know, conveyed like, I can't talk about this or like, I would think that it was a direct attack on me if somebody talked about like a diet or wanting to lose weight. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why would you do that to me if you know that's going to affect me? But at the end of the day, people aren't thinking of that, you know, not people aren't that focused on me and my journey to think like, let's go, you know, mess with her mind never you know what I mean and if somebody does do that to you then like the heck with them but nobody really does that so I have to I had to reframe my mind that like you know I can't make people walk on eggshells around me you know because the whole point of recovery is to reassimilate back into society normally healthy and you can't do that if you keep putting restrictions on every aspect of life or conversation and just learning how to deal with that and reframe how I thought about you know diets and diet culture if I put myself in a situation like you know I'm not afraid of spiders and some people like are so petrified of them and like to me I'm just like and I'll kill it you know and it's okay I don't know <laughs> I don't even know what you're allowed to say or not say anymore. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> Yet again, can't walk on eggshells. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, but that's, that's just me. So maybe somebody who's so deathly afraid of spiders and like seeing one and it crawling on their skin, like that affects them differently. And that's something I don't understand. So, you know, if I think about, and I think that's the same would go for somebody who's trying to help somebody with an eating disorder. Like put yourself in their shoes in a way that you're going to address something that what's your most irrational fear mm -hmm. and think like say it is a spider and it's crawling on your skin and you're petrified of that and you just don't even know what to do you freeze having an eating disorder is feeling that feeling all day every day that heart sinking panic that shaking anxiety that won't go away because when you eat you're no longer going to shake and that's just so far-fetched um you know you put yourself in someone's shoes in that way and you'll be able to like relate a little bit better and be able to see that like this is something that needs you know like tender care and at least in the beginning you know it's very vulnerable in the beginning and even like during it, um, like during experiencing the disorder and trying to get better from it. But eventually like when life goes back to normal, I mean, like I, I see the light at the end of the tunnel that I never saw a long time ago, you know? And I mean, I don't really feel like I'm in a tunnel so much anymore. <laughs> you know, I would say that I'm like 90% there. There's still like gonna be those things that like feel that they're creeping in and ready to attack you but to be able to like check the facts and look back on like is this real probably not 
you know, and that's basically how I reframe my mind now. I'm always, I have to check the facts of the situation. I'm like, well, you know what? I did have seven margaritas this weekend. So like, Good old CBT yeah. skill. Is it true? Yeah. Is it helpful? That, that was my favorite therapeutic form, CBT. Yeah, DBT. that's my favorite. I, I can't, I can't do DBT. It's like, it's not for me. Either. The way I talk, the way I, mean, I, talk. I mean, yeah, I like CBT a lot better too, because, you know, it's very interconnected with, you know, your behaviors and your thoughts and your feelings and why they happen and the root problems that, that yeah, DBT. And different things work for different people. Yeah. Strokes for different folks. So true. I have, um, I have one friend who I went to college with and she told me like, she loved DBT and she was trying to explain it to me. And I'm like, I, I can't. I can't sit there and be like, okay, I don't even remember what it is, but something like, okay, appear this way and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> listen, if I don't, I don't know if I'm so going to shop yeah. around for your therapist, because you know, different folks work in different ways. So find yeah. what works for you personally. So mm-hmm. for sure. well, thank you so much for coming on Gia. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad I got to like talk about it and talk about it with you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Coping with Colleen. Check back next Sunday for a mini episode. As always, thanks for following along and remember to rate, review, and or subscribe so that others can continue to find this podcast too. Until next time. (music) 